we discover from that passage that as it comes out, the mountain he then heads out to a place of Permian. And when you review the Gospels, we discover that our Lord actually spends quite a bit of time in Capernaum. He's already preached a number of times in its synagogue. He's healed large numbers of people there. In fact, we learn from Luke chapter 4 that Peter actually lived there. And so our Lord is in very familiar territory here. And so let me read to you then from Luke chapter 7, and beginning at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turning to the crowd that followed him and saying, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pause then and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time we've already been able to spend together. Thank you for the praise that we've been able to bring to you. Thank you for the the work that you're doing in this place and the, the work throughout the world in connection with this church. And we thank you that when your people come together that we can have far-reaching uh, impact upon lives and upon your world. And Lord, we just ask that as we turn to your word now that you would speak into each of our hearts, that you would help us to understand what it is that you would want to say to us. And that we will be changed as a result of having been here this morning. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the Gospels, and particularly the first couple of years of our Lord's ministry, we read time and time again of how vast crowds came and followed him. In Luke chapter 4, we read about how people were seeking Jesus and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. In Luke chapter 5 we read about how great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And in fact when you go to the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel that we discover that before Jesus enters Capernaum we read that when he came down from the mountain after having teaching his famous sermon on the mount great crowds were following him. And it would seem that these crowds even followed him into Capernaum because we read later in the passage of our Lord turning to the crowds and speaking to them about the faith of the centurion that we made in this passage. What must it have been like to have met Jesus, to have heard him teach even just once? What must it have been like to have seen him heal to, in, in, in front of our very eyes? What must it have been like to have been one of those whom the Lord Jesus touched and healed? It's significant that our Lord never turned anyone away. Those that came for healing were healed. Those with needs were counselled by their Creator. How privileged these people were to have met the Lord Jesus personally. To talk with Him. 
and for many to be healed by him. And I wonder how many of those that met the Lord during his ministry became believers at a later time. And for those that did, how they must have been in awe as they reflected on how privileged they were to have been one of the few in the, in the vast scheme of things that actually got to meet the Lord Jesus whilst he was on earth. And then to consider that that same person, that same Jesus that they spoke with and they met with, then went to that cross and died for them in their place. You see, whilst the Bible records for us that the Lord ministered to vast crowds, it also contains specific encounters with individuals. And in the passage before us today, we're introduced to a centurion. And at the time, Capernaum was an important Roman uh, military town, although Galilee didn't become a, a Roman province until AD 44, the people were still under Roman rule and governed by them. And we discover from history that what the Romans did was to appoint people within their each locality to rule on behalf under a Roman commander. And therefore, whilst the commanders of the occupation army and some of the soldiers would be from the Roman army, the majority of these armed forces were actually made up of local people. Anyone then who became part of an army were hated by the people around them and seen as traitors. Because they now sided with the Romans who were now oppressing the very people that they once lived beside. As the name suggests, a centurion was typically a soldier in charge of a hundred men. In addition, the centurion that we are introduced here would most likely have been a Gentile. And as you're probably aware, relations between Jews and Gentiles were strained at the best of times. The Roman centurions were generally despised because of the way that the majority of them treated the people that they governed. They were not known for their kindness, but rather they were meant to be feared and often ruled and repressive in a fearsome way. After all, they are there to maintain law and order and could be seen as being those with a soft touch. And as we see in a moment, this partly why this particular centurion stands out from the rest. It's interesting to note that we meet a number of centurions in the Gospels and in a number of cases the Bible is actually very positive things to say about them. You remember at the cross that after the Lord Jesus had breathed his last it was the centurion that explained truly this was the Son of God. It was also the centurion that testified to the fact before Pilate that Jesus was really dead. Now you'll notice that the Bible says that this centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. Interestingly, the word that Matthew uses in the parallel account literally means a young child. Whereas Luke uses the more common word, doulos, which is the most common word used to describe a slave. And so perhaps with the use of these two words, it perhaps suggests that the servant that is unwell here is in fact a young child that has been born into a family of slaves that were already in this household of the centurion. Perhaps the centurion at some stage has purchased a husband and a wife as his slaves who then have a child of their own. That child, whether it's a boy or a girl, we don't know, is then born into that slave family and therefore by default is under the ownership of the slave owner, which in this case was the centurion. Now Luke tells us here in verse 2 that this servant was at the point of death. Again, in the parallel passage in Matthew's account, Matthew in Matthew chapter 8, tells us that the servant is lying paralysed at home, suffering terribly. The text doesn't tell us what caused the servant to be in this condition. Perhaps it was an illness, perhaps it was the result of an accident. 
But whatever the cause, undoubtedly a serious situation, here we have this young child that is paralysed, in great pain and by all accounts, is going to die. This is a desperate situation. The reaction then of the centurion sets him apart from all of the other slave owners of his day. Because it was unusual that someone in his position would show any concern whatsoever to a slave within his household, regardless of whether it was a child or not. Slaves were seen simply as commodities, and therefore the slave owner generally had very little regard for the slaves that he owned. They were there to do a job. In fact, under Roman law, the, the slave owner possessed the right of life and death over their slave. Rather than the slave owner incurring any kind of inconvenience or cost for medical treatment, under most normal circumstances, a slave in this condition would likely have been left to die, or in the most extreme cases, would actually have been put to death. The fact then that this centurion shows any concern and care for his servant at all indicated a level of compassion not normally associated with a man of his position. And it becomes clear that this centurion has some cloud in Capernaum because the passage tells us that when he hears about Jesus and all that he has been doing and how Jesus has been healing the sick, the Bible tells us that he sent to Jesus elders of the Jews. Now the text does say that he asked them to go on his behalf. It says he sent them. This is later expanded upon in the passage where the friends of the centurion explain to Jesus how this man has such authority over others that they do what he says. And you see that the centurion has such authority that he is able to even call the Jewish leaders to him and send them out to ask them to, to, to Jesus to come and heal his servant. Now it's likely the reason that he sent the Jewish elders to Jesus was perhaps because he thought it would be unlikely for Jesus to respond to his appeals. As a Gentile Roman centurion going and asking Jesus, this, this Jewish rabbi, as he was seen, he probably thought that he would have no chance of persuading him to come. But if he sent the Jewish elders, then perhaps he would be able to persuade him to come and help his servant. And so notice then the way that the Jewish elders approach Jesus. And they speak to him in such a way that this would suggest that they were actually happy to do this on behalf of the centurion. Under most normal circumstances, the Jewish elders would have done nothing to have helped a Gentile Roman centurion unless they absolutely had to. And yet here they are willingly and openly going to Jesus on this man's behalf. And it's actually a testament to how highly regarded this centurion was because notice in verse 4, that when they come to Jesus, the Bible says that they pleaded with him earnestly. Now we know the centurion had the authority and if he'd wanted to, he could have forced people to do whatever he wanted and to say whatever he told them. But what comes across from the passage is that the Jewish elders appear to be genuine in their appeal on the centurion's behalf or on the behalf of the servant. There's no suggestion they've come to Jesus under duress and been forced to do this, but rather it seems that they're willing advocates to plead on the centurion's behalf. And so notice in verses 4 and 5 what the elders say about him. We read that when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He would discover what set this Gentile centurion apart from all the others. He's a God-fearing Gentile. 
The elders testified to this man's love for the Jewish people and how that love had been demonstrated by the fact that he was responsible for the construction of their synagogue. A synagogue that Jesus himself had already preached in a number of times. And so in response to this appeal we read in verse 6 that Jesus went with them. Keep in mind though that Jesus would undoubtedly have been surrounded by a large crowd at this point, all with varying needs, all with demands upon his time seeking to try and get an audience with Jesus, and yet he is so interested in this man's servant that he is willing to go to him. A wonderful example of how the Lord Jesus is interested in the individual. Yes, he is the saviour of the world, and yes, the salvation is open to anyone who would respond. But never forget that he is your saviour personally. That he's interested in the minute details of your life, that the things that trouble you, the things that keep you awake at night, the things that cause you so much discomfort and unrest, our Lord is interested in. He's never too busy. You never have to make an appointment. It's never inconvenient. He is your saviour. Always ready and willing to have that listening ear ready to respond and to hear and to meet with you. You can perhaps imagine then this large crowd then making their way through Capernaum. Perhaps others joining them as they went, wondering what all this commotion is about, what is going on. And it seemed then that news came to the centurion that Jesus is on his way, because notice what he does in verse 6. We read that Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Perhaps there were some that wondered why the centurion did not come to Jesus himself. Did he think he was too important to, to, to trouble himself to come to Jesus? Perhaps some thought that. Perhaps the centurion wants to stay with the servant who is suffering and offer support to his mum and dad and, and offer comfort as much as he could. As we've already mentioned, he would know that most religious teachers would not have had anything to do with a Gentile Roman centurion. And so perhaps thought that if he sent these Jewish elders, they would have a better chance of persuading Jesus to come. But here we see the main reason why the centurion did not approach Jesus himself. Because he did not feel worthy to go. You see, it's significant that that's in stark contrast to how the elders appealed to Jesus in the first place. The, the Jewish elders appealed to Jesus on the basis that the centurion did deserve the Lord to come. Notice what they say to Jesus in verse 4. He's worthy to have you do this for him. But the centurion himself says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my that's why I didn't presume to come to you. And here we see the defining difference between the faith of the elders and the faith of the centurion. The elders had a faith that was based on works. Whereas the centurion had a faith that was hope and it was based on grace. You see the Jewish elders had a theology that said when a person is good and obedient then God blesses them and anything less is unjust. And essentially they're arguing that Jesus should go to the centurion's servant and heal him because this guy deserves it. 
In other words, Jesus, what is actually happening here is unjust and you need to fix it. A faith that is based on works makes God our debtor. A faith that is based on works means that God owes us something. But you see, God never ever owes us anything good. That every goodness and blessing that we enjoy comes to us by grace. Every single time. And it's a case that we've become so used to the grace of God that we take it for granted. And that we confuse his mercies and his grace to us with something that we think we deserve. And so when things go wrong in life, the first question we often ask is how could God let this happen? And yet in truth when we understand how we have rebelled against him, the question actually ought to be is why shouldn't it happen? You see, when we consider how we've sinned against God, it's an amazing act of his grace and love that we would enjoy anything good from his hand. That if God gave us what we deserve, he would give us hell right here and now. And yet instead of that, he gives us his son. The most precious thing to him is what he gave to us. This centurion says, despite what others may say, I'm not worthy, Lord, to have you come to me and come under my roof. That's why I sent my elders to you. That's why even now I've sent my friends to you. Because who am I to come to one such as you? Because whilst the centurion was not worthy to approach Jesus or to have him come to his home, notice that Jesus still goes. That if Jesus only dealt with people that deserved it, then there would be no hope for any of us. And what is so incredible and what we must never forget is that the message of the gospel is for those who know they're not worthy. When you consider what the Lord Jesus has done for you, are you humbled? Are you overwhelmed that such grace and forgiveness has been shown to you or have we become so used that we take it for granted? Now in verses 7 and 8 we see the depths of the centurion's faith where he likens our Lord's authority to the authority he himself has over the soldiers under his command. Where he explains that he only needs to say the word and the soldiers under his command will do exactly as he says. And what the centurion is saying here is that he believes that Jesus has such authority that Jesus can do exactly the same and issue a command. And simply say the word and his servant will be made well. The centurion recognised that despite having such a position, despite him having such authority that he could command virtually anyone in Capernaum to do what he wanted, when he wanted, and they would be obliged to do it, when it comes to the condition of his servant who is lying paralysed, in terrible pain and is going to die, he is totally and completely helpless. His position, his status means nothing. When it comes to matters of life and death, his authority means nothing. And so he turns to Jesus. And he recognises that Jesus has such authority that his word means something. And he says to Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. You don't even need to see my servant. I believe that you've got such authority 
All it takes for you to say the word. That's why this shooting was not worthy to come to Jesus. Because this shooting recognized that Jesus had the authority to decide whether I live or die with just a word. You see, that's the same Jesus that told the paralyzed man, rise and walk, and he did. The same Jesus that commanded the storm with the words, peace, be still, and it was calm. The same Jesus that in the very next passage would say to a dead man, arise, and he rose. And it's the same Jesus that would say to the woman at the end of the chapter, your sins are forgiven, and they were. That his authority is absolute, that he only needs to say the word. And in Matthew account, we're told that Jesus says, Go, let it be done for you as you believed. And the Bible says that the servant was healed at that very moment. You see, when Jesus heals you, you get well instantly. There's no recovery period. It's not like getting over the flu when it takes us several days for us to get back to full strength. When Jesus heals, a person is made well instantly. Can you imagine then what must have been going on in the centurion's house? They're aware that Jesus is on his way and, and the centurion has sent his friends out to meet him and they're aware there's a conversation going on but they've got no idea what has been said and what is happening. And they're sitting around this child in this bedside and this kid is lying there paralysed in pain and is in death's door. And then all of a sudden, without any warning, the kid just jumps up and starts running around the room looking for his toys, doing what kids do, as though nothing had ever been wrong. If the centurion felt unworthy before, Imagine how humbled he must have felt now. Knowing full well he was not worthy to have the Lord come to him, and yet in his grace and his mercy, he sees before his very eyes the Lord doing the thing that he had asked him to do, and to heal his servant. I wonder perhaps if that's, that centurion fell on his knees and thanked God for what he had just witnessed. Knowing full well how unworthy he was and how unworthy he is to have Jesus do anything for him. And the centurion must have felt so overwhelmed that Jesus had done what he asked. And is that our experience? That when we come to the Lord and we pray about something, are we moved and are we humbled when he answers? What we ought to find is that the longer we're Christians, the more humbled and amazed we ought to be by God's grace in our lives because we see more and more the Lord working in ways we know we do not deserve as I finish I want you to notice one final thing in verse 9 we read that Jesus marvelled at him or the NIV puts it he is amazed at him and Jesus says that not even in Israel have I found such faith it wasn't that Jesus hadn't found faith in Israel. It was just that he hadn't found faith quite like this. Imagine having a faith that amazes Jesus. Imagine having a faith 
that makes our Lord stand back and go, wow. You and I can have that kind of faith. Because our faith amazes Jesus when you and I are truly amazed by him. And all that he has done for us and all that he means to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to spend around your word looking at a passage that perhaps is familiar to us to store an account of something that took place all those years ago that we know perhaps well. But Lord, as we've looked at this again, we're just amazed that such compassion on the part on the part of the Lord Jesus that he would take time out of everything else that he was doing, of looking at that vast crowd, all with their varying needs and everything, and all the demands that would be placed upon him, and yet he was so concerned about this centurion's servant that he would take the time to go and to meet with him. And Lord, it's incredible that here we see the faith of this man who would believe that Jesus only needed to say the word and his heaven would be made well. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for those times, Father, where we come up with so many reasons and so many excuses why things can't happen. Why we shouldn't do something. And it just comes down to a lack of faith and a lack of trust on who you are and what you're able to do. That your word tells us that you're more than able to do all, more than we could ever ask or imagine. That even when we take our, our, our most wildest thoughts and, and, and our wildest dreams as to what you could do even here in this place and in this community, that you're able to far exceed even what we could even possibly imagine. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a faith that amazes you. That as this congregation seek to reach out into this community, that they would do so with a faith that amazes you. A faith that is based on how much they love Jesus and how amazed they are of him and what he has done for them in order that that would flood out of this place and into this community. And that people would see the difference that Jesus makes. Lord, would you take this word and bless it to our hearts, we ask. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.